Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, assistant editor Michelle Rendells and I sat down with Kate Marshall, the lieutenant governor, who will be leaving her role in the state to join the Biden administration. Also, Michelle White, the governor's chief of staff, will be leaving her role in Carson City, and reporter Megan Mesterly spoke with her. After that, reporter Jackie Valley sat down with you, Joey, to talk about a proposed anti-racism policy at the Clark County School District and some of the racist incidents that have inspired that proposal in the first place. And at the end of the show, I talk with Sergio Avila of AAA Nevada about why the state's gas prices have skyrocketed recently. Nevada is seeing two major players leave office soon, Governor Steve Sisolak's Chief of Staff Michelle White and Lieutenant Governor Kate Marshall. Marshall will be stepping down from her role as Lieutenant Governor to take a position at the White House as a senior advisor to governors in the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. Assistant Editor Michelle Rundells and I sat down with Marshall to talk about leaving her office and starting a new job in D.C. Folks, when they look at this lieutenant governor office, because you are second in command, if, if something happens, you, you take over. So some people approach this seat with clear ambitions to be governor. But has that been how you have ever viewed this seat? No, I, I, I did not take the pulse of the governor every time I shook his hand. So no, if that's what you're referring to, that adage. I take every office as an opportunity to uh, do what one can. I think if you're just going to go into office to get another office, I don't know what you're, I, I don't think that's, you're suited for public service. Do you ever see yourself running for office again as you have a couple times in the past? I don't put it in the no category. This is a very exciting moment for me. And so it's hard for me to see beyond even just to try to get through the first day and hope I do a good job. But my husband and I will both definitely be keeping our home here in Reno. And I am a Westerner. just wanted to ask a little bit about some of the initiatives got started on your watch as LG. One of the most recent being the Keep Nevada Working Task Force that you guys announced last week, I believe it was. We heard about that during the session. I'm sure you've put more thought to it in the months since. So what is really your vision with what that group is going to be doing? Okay, so first I think you you have to take some kind of perspective of In this country, unless you're Native American, you came to this country at some point or your ancestors came to this country and they had to find their way, having separated from their homeland, separated from their family and what they knew. And this country has done, I think, a remarkable job of people being able to make a home here, whatever their culture, whatever their language, whatever their their dreams. And I think in the more recently we have We have dropped the ball in that regard. We used to go to libraries and learn English, right? And there were all these things that we as Americans did. I'm not saying that there weren't failures. There's always failures. But we certainly embarked on this with an appetite that I don't think exists in other countries. And so in my mind, part of the Keep Nevada Working Task Force is to put people on a panel and and let us try to see what we can do to further prosperity in immigrant communities. And that really requires a more comprehensive 
view of things, right? It's not just education. It's not just finding a job. It's not just healthcare. It's all of it. And so you'll see that the makeup of the um, board really covers a wide swath. So my idea was, is that we would, and I I assume that uh, whoever replaces me will have their own vision. But my vision was that we would have people come together and we could look at various data indicators for immigrant communities and choose a handful of those because there are going to be many, but a handful that that particular committee wants to focus on and then identify ways to measure those indicators and then set ourselves some goals and then report back to the legislature on these are the indicators we want to mark. This is what we want to measure. These are the goals that we think we should focus on. And here's some ways that we think we can further those goals. You mentioned whoever is going to succeed you and, and, and the NV Dems have endorsed Deborah Marsh to, uh, to be your replacement. Do you have any endorsements for the role at this point? No, that's not my place. I, I mean, really, it is the governor's um, appointment. And I will support who the governor appoints. He needs a partner. He may have a particular view of what he wants his next four years to look like. And so I give that to him. And then, of course, after that, then it's up to the voters. And so nowhere in that process did you see me. I'm going to let them participate as they should. Moving on to another topic that you were involved with is the census. I think it's safe to say that did not go how anybody planned. But overall, do you think it was a success in Nevada? Well, we came in number one in the nation in terms of the increase in the self-response rate. And I think that is a direct result of the committee and of the work that that committee did to reach out to their various pockets and have those pockets reach out and reach out and reach out. We, we didn't let up. We didn't let up. I called every single mayor. Who I don't know if you know, we have 19 mayors in the state. And I said, if you are not out there getting your people to fill out the census, I'm going to come make a personal visit because I need you and you know how important this is. And so I think we did a pretty good job. I think a big issue going forward is going to be redistricting. You want to have, make sure that you have all the data and that it's transparent so that, again, you can have participation in how those districts are drawn. You're, you're moving over to the, the Biden administration now, right? What, what do you think you're going to bring in your new role? So I will be a senior advisor to governors, and I've worked in state government. I, ha- I have worked in the federal government, and I've worked in state government. And so I, I see the differences, and I understand, for example, at least Nevada's budget, how a lot of the interactions are between state agencies and the federal monies they get where the glitches are with those things. For example, you, you, I was just at an NDOT board meeting, Department of Transportation board meeting this morning, and they got $33 million in the August redistribution because we spent all of our federal dollars. So other states are losing because they didn't spend all their allocation, right? So these kinds of things that people at the federal level may not, may not have in front of mind. And and the various difficulties that states need to communicate so that they can do what they need to do on their side. And of course, with COVID, with wildfires, with Afghan evacuees resettlement, these kinds of things really will require coordination as we work through those things. 
about to be trying to facilitate between governors and the White House, between the White House and governors. Right. I think kind of our final series of questions is, is about what advice do you have for the person who will be filling your shoes when you leave? Oh, that's kind of you. You are on very many boards. Almost only the governor is on more boards than the lieutenant governor. And if you wanted to solely occupy your time with those boards, you could. But there is an opportunity to step in to those spaces that that need attention. So, for example, during COVID, I did Delivering with Dignity. I think we had 80,000 meals up here in Reno that we provided to people who needed to stay at home and didn't have the resources. We raised over $500,000. Really, the whole community came together, right? So it was an opportunity to step in. We knew that our businesses, we wanted them to stay open. We knew that people needed to be fed. And so bringing that together. The lieutenant governor position is such that you can meet your passion there. And now moving from the lieutenant governor to the governor's chief of staff. Michelle White will be stepping down from her role, which she has held for over two and a half years. And our reporter Megan Mesterly talked to her about that and more. As Governor Steve Sisolak's chief of staff, Michelle White has helped shepherd the state through one of the most difficult periods in its history as it grappled with not only a global pandemic, but record unemployment rates, an intense period of political division, and a nationwide racial reckoning. Now, after nearly three years of service, White is leaving the governor's office. I sat down with her this week over Zoom to talk a little bit about what the experience was like. I wanted to start off. You came into this position as a political operative. How did that background prepare you for this position? I think what was helpful is that while I did come from campaign world, political operative world, I also had the opportunity because I worked for legislative caucuses to be part of that legislative process. So got to see up close in an intimate way, the inner workings of state government when it comes to the legislative session. Before you were asked to take on the position, did it ever cross your mind that you would want to work in state government and work in this capacity? When I joined as transition director, that was not part of the initial conversations. It wasn't an ask for me and it didn't come up. And so there was no expectation, right? And I didn't grow up being like, one day I'm going to go be a chief of staff or serve in a big leadership position in government. I, I, I didn't even know that was a, a possibility, right? That, that that's something that would be out there and be an opportunity and be a right fit for me. Like my parents can't believe I do this, right? They, my dad just re- retired from the train yard in Boston and my mom was a waitress most of my life and now works at a local bank. Like they can't even believe their kid is out there doing this. I'm so glad I did it because, you know, I, I feel like I have been able to contribute and, and hopefully be a good leader and, and, you know, make a little bit of change. As you look back over the last year and a half, what was the most difficult part of navigating the state's COVID-19 response? I hope it is the most challenging thing I ever have to do in my career. I, I, I hope that that's the peak because every day was massively challenging. Every day was so full of obstacles and, you know, sometimes you just feel like you're getting kicked in the teeth. It's just, it's just so hard. And, and actually, it's not even a, a personal, like, this is so hard for me. It was so hard for the state. I think one of the hardest parts when I look back in the last year and a half is that we were surrounded by all these incredible public servants, all these folks who are trying so hard to help 
all the people that they see in need. And there are so many needs out there, right? Highest unemployment rate in American history, right? People are losing their jobs. Kids are home from school. We're seeing kids try to access internet at like Wi-Fi hotspots at fast food restaurants. It's one thing after the other. And the images really tell the story and it's heartbreaking. And so we're seeing this every single day on top of the you know, public health crisis and rising cases and deaths and hospitalizations, et cetera. And it's so incredibly overwhelming. We have this, a, a relatively small size state government and infrastructure and the problems are bigger than any other state. And so it was the daily, the daily challenge of having to accept that we can't fix everything as fast as we want to fix everything. We can't help everyone we want to help today. And that was really hard because like I said, every single one of us took those things home with us. Because it's under-resourced in a lot of ways, Nevada can be very reactive as a state. Do you think the state can continue operating as it does now, trying to operate on the shoestring budget and be scrappy and fix things as they come? Or is there something that needs to be done to make life more sustainable? And I think when it comes to those hard conversations about investments, it truly is that balance of we need to first ensure that the funding and budgeting we are doing now is meeting the needs of this moment. And then it was, okay, you know, pay off those debts, put on savings. And then as we go to spend, let's make investments. Let's try to be smart about it. And I think he's really taking that approach with the federal funding. We have to really be strategic and smart to have this money hopefully be transformational. We have this money coming in, but the structure to handle that money is still the same as when there wasn't that money there. It's still small. It's still, it's still really hard to do. So I think as a state, the first step should be taking a step back and having that conversation about with whether it's federal funding or anything else, I mean, how do we manage this in a way that can make that dollar either grow or stretch even further and that we're not just spending to have another Band-Aid, that we're actually fixing a problem so we don't have to spend more in 10 years. Was there any time in the last year and a half that you thought about quitting? Oh, yeah. And I don't, and I say that as like the most honest answer ever. And I think that if everyone was going to give you an honest answer who's worked on this response in the last year and a half, the answer is going to be, yeah, I feel like the biggest privilege of this job, the biggest honor and something that I'll never forget in my life was sitting and watching the governor go through these really hard decisions. We're laying out every option we could possibly think of. And these were hard decisions. He can barely talk about shutting down the strip to this day. And he tries to, but he can barely get out those words. He means that being able to see him navigate through those decisions and actually be decisive, right? I think a lot about, I've been reflecting a lot and thinking a lot about what does crisis leadership mean? And to me, it's the ability not just to yell from the mountaintop and to say a lot of things, but it's the ability to actually make decisions when no one else wants to make them because they're all unpopular. They are going to all be lose-lose, right? But, and the options could be crap and the, the information you have in front of you is so limited, but you know, you got to move fast. As you prepare to hand the reins over to incoming Chief of Staff Ivana Kinsella, is there anything you wish you had known coming to the position that you've shared with her? I remember some things of like the boards the governor serves on. I was like, here is a list of all the boards. Here's what they do. And here's how often they meet. And here's what briefings look like. So there's those things that are just part of the office structure, the regular business, but been trying to at least put all these things together to really help guide like 
what are those things I really wish I knew that someone just laid out for me? State government is full of a million acronyms, making sure that, right, there's some guides for that. So there's those sort of things that that I always thought would be really helpful that, that I'm trying to make sure she has access to. Luckily, she is an accomplished leader here and she's a legislator here. So she's so familiar with so many folks. She's great state government experience. So that's going to be, it's going to make the transition a million times easier and it's going to be so, so helpful. Final question. What's next for you? That is the question. And people always think I'm lying um, when I say this, but I don't know. I I think, look, the, the God's honest truth about all this is this has been a dream job. I mean, I love this job so much, no matter how hard it was. I loved, I loved this job. I really do. Like it has been the most rewarding, fulfilling experience. And I think it was recognizing that, you know, those things we often don't talk about because we plow ahead and we get the job done every day. But I want to spend time with my family. I want to rest a little bit. You know, these have been, gosh, 15 hour plus days every day for the entire time. And certainly in the last year and a half. White's last day is Friday, September 17th, at which point incoming Chief of Staff Ivana Cancela officially takes over. Be sure to follow the Nevada Independent for more on this and other news out of the governor's office. All right. And so I am here with our reporter, Jackie Valley. I, I almost said education reporter. And, and while that you are reporting on education still, um, you're also going to be picking up a new beat, which you can hear about in last week's podcast, episode 200. But Jackie, this week we are talking about education. So we're talking about this policy that is going to be implemented in Clark County, tackling racism and an anti-racism policy. And uh, it hasn't been fully implemented yet. It hasn't been fully written out yet. But the idea is that they've been dealing with these racist incidents that have happened in Clark County. And then there's been backlash by parents, obviously. And then now, now they're working on this policy. Can you explain to me you know, a little bit about what it is? Yeah. So, Joey, this process really, in theory, goes back more than two years ago. And that's when there was a, a terrible racist threat on Instagram made against nine Black students at Arborview High School. And so... As a result of that, two students were arrested, but two of the moms of two of the victims formed a bond, and that's Deshante Marshall and Akiko Cooks. And so since then, they realized that the district needed a better way to handle incidents of racism when they arise. You know, that the line is that it's simply not enough nowadays to not be racist. You have to proactively be anti-racist. And so that's the direction they've been trying to push the school district in. So we had this terrible racist threat back in March of 2019. You know, then we had the pandemic. We saw the national reckoning over race issues. You know, we had the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, too many others to name, unfortunately. So this is all kind of moving forward at the same time. The board gives the green light to go ahead and move forward with this. There's definitely some who argue this is moving way slower than it should, but they are on the path to create a policy. Like a policy will be drafted and I think likely implemented early next year. So the the creation process really aligns with a, a new state law passed at the end of May, and that is AB 371. And so what that did was it, adds racism to an existing anti-bullying law. And the distinction is really that any racial incident should be handled in the same manner as bullying incidents are. And the reason for that is multi-tiered, but essentially bullying could be ongoing recurring incidents, whereas a racial incident, racist incident of any kind just happens to happen one time. 
and then that this will enact protocols. So AB 371 really set the foundation. What Jashante Marshall and Akiko Cooks, who are the founders of No Racism in Schools 1865, want is an anti-racism policy at the district level then that really solidifies AB 371 and adds what they call a second layer of protection. So go a little bit more beyond the data tracking components of it and say racism shouldn't be tolerated at all in the district. This is how it should be handled when it does arise. So, you know, we'll find out more details about what that may actually look like once there's a written draft, but that's the direction it's heading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about the reaction that's occurred, you know, now that this has been brought up at the school board and everything, and they're trying to get it to, to, you know, be a district-wide policy? Yeah. So it definitely hasn't been a quick process, as we've already pointed out, and there has been some very tense school board meetings related to this topic. We've seen it play out across the nation as well. Critical race theory has emerged as this flashpoint. And really, you know, that's this higher education framework, academic theory that looks at how racism is um, woven into the U.S. legal system. That term itself has been mistakenly adopted and used to oppose any efforts to address systemic racism, implicit biases, and all all of those things. So it's been kind of co-opted and taken on a life of its own with a lot of the pushback for anti-racism policies or anything of that nature. So we, we saw that too in the Clark County School District. There have been packed board meetings, long public comment, etc. But regardless, this is moving forward. The Clark County School District and trustees have reiterated that critical race theory is not a consideration in terms of this anti-racism policy. That's not what this is about. So like you said, this is going to be implemented. And, and I think, you know, there's been some pushback against it kind of mistakenly being critical race theory, even though that's not really what it is. But what what are the next steps to get this implemented, right? It's not yet implemented. Yeah, so it's still in the creation process. What the school district did was create both an internal task force and an external task force. They've also brought aboard four people who are deemed professional experts who will kind of serve as a liaison interacting with both task forces to help write the policy. The external task force has 38 members, including Jashante Marshall and Akiko Cooks. And so they just started meeting. I think the first meeting was largely meet and greet, get to know each other. The hard work will begin in terms of actually discussing what it should look like. But, you know, the important thing is they're not forging new ground. Other school districts have done this and, in fact, done it in a much quicker timeline. So it's not like they're starting from scratch. I do think that there will be some interesting discussions during these task force meetings. The goal is to have some sort of a draft available, I believe, in October and then starting down the path of a trustee approval later in the year. Yeah. And one thing that I want to talk about, too, when we're talking about racism in school districts, right, is obviously racism is something that has become more talked about in recent years. But how has Clark County faced racism in the past? Have we seen them have to deal with any major racist incidents or have they kind of just, you know, swept it under the rug or not talked about it? Or how, how does racism play into Clark County specifically in its history? Yeah. So, I mean, we definitely know that racism, unfortunately, permeates all corners of society from restaurants, medical settings to, to schools. So obviously it happens. And I think the point that Jashante Marshall and Akiko Cooks are trying to make is that the incident involving their sons back in 2019 really highlighted how ill-equipped the school district was to handle an incident like that. And that one made headlines, but it's obviously not the only 
racial incident happening across the school district. And so what they want to see is a more proactive stance for how do we handle this when it occurs? And, and, you know, how can we also prevent it from occurring in the first place? All right, Jackie. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And we'll be sure to uh, keep, keep checking in on your reporting to see how this all plays out. All right. Thanks so much. All right, and so I'm here with Sergio Avila, a spokesperson with AAA Nevada, and we are going to be talking about gas prices today, uh, something that I'm sure a lot of Nevada residents have been noticing if they've had to fill up at the gas station anytime soon. So, uh, Sergio, thanks for joining me. Of course, anytime. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's just start with the big question, which is, you know, we've been seeing gas prices rise for quite a while now. Why, why are gas prices on the rise? Gosh, so it really all kind of began in March, where... COVID-19 restrictions, especially in our state, began to loosen. So what we saw as AAA from our travel side, that people were just starting to travel again because they could do so a little more freely. So we saw that hit. And then at the same time, crude oil prices started to increase as that demand increased as well. And we saw a pretty big, significant spike around March, April in gas prices. And ever since then, the prices just continued an upward trend, mainly driven by the fact that demand has been strong and crude oil prices kind of continued to increase in price up to just a few weeks ago, we saw crude oil start to level off and start to dip a little bit. But since about March, we've seen the price of gasoline increase, which I'm sure all your listeners feel it in, in their wallet. Yeah, yeah. And and so you're saying we're seeing it kind of start to level off right now. Is there like a reason for that? Is it just as, as prices rise, they can't go too much because people will stop driving or what's going on with those? Yeah, the so we, we initially saw that rush of demand, like I said, when COVID-19 restrictions began to loosen. And then that led us right into the summer travel season, you know, so Independence Day, you know, people were out there traveling and people were driving to their location as opposed to flying because maybe they felt more comfortable in a vehicle. So we saw a lot more people driving which led that demand to increase. Now, what we're expecting to happen is that demand is going to start to decrease. Uh, We saw the price of gasoline in in Nevada begin to level off and just dip by a couple of cents. We're expecting that demand will decrease because not as many people are going to be traveling. More people are in school. Families are getting back into those routines and the demand on gasoline should be less. The one thing that us as AAA we're really looking at right now is just the price of crude oil, especially with what's going on in the Gulf Coast. There's a lot of refineries that are down, although those don't really impact us here in Nevada because we get most of our gasoline from California and some from Utah as well. But if that area has prolonged outages that could drive the price of crude oil up, then we could see, you know, even though demand is down, that crude oil prices really drive the cost of gasoline here in our state. Well, and that's something that I've been thinking about too, is, you know, you see other states and and even, I mean, other than California and Hawaii, it seems like Nevada is is one of the highest states in terms of gas prices. Why is that? Why does Nevada have such high gas prices compared to other states? You know, Nevada typically sits, I would say within the top five most expensive states in the country for gasoline, like you said, behind California, behind Hawaii. And the the main reason for that is that unfortunately, Nevada doesn't produce a lot of gasoline and we get the most of our gasoline from California, which produces some of the most expensive gasoline in the country. And so those costs are passed on uh, to drivers here in the state. Yeah. And and are there a lot of tax reasons for this as well? I know like a lot of our road taxes have to do with gas prices, but you know, you look at California, people always complain like, oh, you know, all of our 
all of our gas prices are so high because we have such high taxes. And then in other states, they have things like toll roads and toll bridges. You know, we don't have those in Nevada. Is, is part of that tax related or, or is it mostly just because it's so expensive from California? Yeah, you know, when it comes to taxes in Nevada, we pay about 68 cents per gallon to go to state, federal and other taxes, which is pretty high compared to other states. So we do have a lot of state taxes here in the in Nevada that contribute to our higher fuel costs. Does the higher price of, of gasoline, does that affect things like travel through the state? I would be kind of amazed if someone needed to drive from Utah to California and they decided to go around Nevada because of fuel prices. But does that kind of affect that, that, that industry? When it comes to travel, what we've noticed as AAA is that it really doesn't impact somebody's trip. If someone's planning on driving somewhere, higher gas prices don't really impact their decision to make that trip or not. With COVID-19, you know, and the spike, and even before the spike, there, there's a hesitancy to fly, right? You're in a very confined space with a lot of people. And so people are choosing to drive. Are you guys seeing as as a as AAA, like, do you do you think that this summer is maybe worse than last summer? Or, or have you seen like a significant change? Or do you think it's about the same? I could tell you compared to last summer, of course, last summer, you know, people weren't driving. So yeah, we were during during the height of the pandemic. A lot of restrictions were in place. People just weren't driving. That's why we saw gas prices at you know two dollars a gallon and things like that during the summer times. Just we, no, the demand just wasn't there. So sure, you know, compared to last year, today or this year is completely different. All right. Well, I appreciate you being on the podcast, Sergio. Absolutely, anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Kate Marshall, Michelle White, Michelle Rundells, Megan Messerly, Jackie Valley, and Sergio Avila for being on the show this week. We'd also like to thank assistant editor Michelle Rundells and Riley Snyder, the dynamic duo, who not only help us edit this very podcast, but also help edit the monthly newsletter, Soundcheck, which features extended interviews from the podcast and more. If you want to help the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, best cooking utensils, chandelier swing techniques, or whatever else you can think of at joey at the or jacob at the Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Lance Conrad and original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. God, I can still hear this swallowing. <laughs> the, the, lip, the lip smacking. I have my AirPods in. It's funny that you can hear them. Well, thanks, Apple. Thanks for making me listen to Joey chew a donut.